I have a dream that all men are created equal. Welcome back to Your Story. I'm your host, Ian Kath. This is episode 25. I'm in London, and I'm finally getting a chance to get a bit of a show out. It's been a little bit hard. Uh, I've mentioned this previously in, in addendum. It's quite hard when, you tra- when you're travelling. I've, I've realised that as I'm... It's also exciting, isn't it? There's so many things to go and see and people to talk to and spend time that I've actually got to find time to unplug, and it's very challenging. Uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks while I'm here in London, I'll actually get a bit of a chance to unplug for a few half days here and there and be able to... Uh, a bit of effort into getting this post-production i never realized before i started this whole process that the uh, post-production takes a lot longer than i expected and even though i'm getting a lot faster with it it's still got a long way to go uh, i'd love to be able to get it down to only a few hours per episode but at the moment it still takes the better part of a day per episode like I said, I'm in London at the moment, and if anybody's around, if, if anybody's here in London and they want to get a hold of me, uh, there's all the usual contacts. I'll be here until the 27th before I'll be heading back to Australia. So uh, if you want to get a hold of me, it's chat at yourstorypodcast.com. The site, of course, is yourstorypodcast.com. Uh, there's always your p- opportunity for you to leave a comment at the end of the post. I always love hearing from people. Uh, all the usual sort of stuff's over at the site. There's always I always like to try and put a few photos up with each episode and with the addendum episodes because they're a bit more self-indulgent. I've been throwing f- quite a few photos up of my travels. don't know if you're interested in them, but hey, this is all self-indulgent too, so I'm doing it a bit for just my interest. Subscription links, all that sort of stuff. I, I just thought I might mention to you, a lot of people don't realise that when they just go to the site and play the episodes directly from the site if you've got itunes or for that matter any form of and the term is a rss aggregator you can actually automatically get the feed sent to you the easiest the most common the one that a lot of people use uh, is uh, itunes if you've got itunes you can actually go to the itunes store uh, search for your story and or subscribe to it the subscription means that it's free now there is no charging of podcasts so even though the term subscription there's no money involved yeah you can get it automatically sent to you and then along with all the other podcasts that you may be interested in they'll just automatically turn up in itunes and if you've got an ipod when you plug your ipod in it'll just automatically sync across to your ipod and all of a sudden one day there i am talking to you again as usual music's from iodo promenet i like trying to look after them i'd like you to look after them too also if you're interested in the music go over there and buy it can't you okay today's show even though I'm in London as we speak, I recorded this when I first arrived in Prague. And I've mentioned my Prague visit a couple of times in Dendam, a few things I noticed about Prague and a few things I noticed about Adam, who I spent a huge amount of time with. Um, we both educated each other quite a bit about our respective countries. He primarily educated me about Canada and uh, also Prague. And I had a wonderful time with Adam. And... Uh, he explains quite a bit in this episode about the Czech Republic, where its place in Europe is, 
Uh, and he was able to weave a bit of an understanding of how Prague and the Czech Republic fits into greater Europe. And I was then able to link that to what I'd seen in Berlin in the previous couple of weeks. I found it quite interesting to see differences and parallels, especially with the whole communist side of things. Hey, thanks, Adam. I just want to put it put it out there on this show. Um, thanks very much, mate. It was a wonderful time. I'm glad you were able to educate, guide, and also friend me in Prague. I had a tremendous time with you. And um, I hopefully... you you the listener out there may get a little bit of what we got into like i said in the episode this is right in the first couple of hours that we met and uh, this linked on to a lot of further discussions that we had it's a great old city it has lots of history and culture uh, i'd suggest it's a must visit for anybody if you're coming to europe uh, and by listening to this episode you might actually get a bit of a grounding of what Prague and the Czech Republic's all about and it may actually enrich your visit to Prague if you ever get a chance to get over there and have a look at it and give you a slightly better feel for it. Ah, anyway, the best thing is let Adam tell you all about it. So I hope you enjoy. Here's Adam's story. 31st of July 2008. I'm in Prague. Just arrived today and I'm sitting here with young Adam Daniel Mazay. Now, Adam and I we go back, oh, probably about three or four months now, maybe a bit longer. Um, Adam and I follow each other on Twitter, social networking platform, and we've uh, we've shared a few exchanges, we've listened to a few of each other's podcasts, and we've uh, you got to know each other a little bit. And Adam threw the word out when I was coming here that maybe I should drop into Prague, so I took up the offer, and here I am. And I want to talk to Adam about a few things about podcasting but I also want to talk about this culture that is Czech, no, Czech Republic as it's called and uh, a little bit of what got him here because I think it's an interesting story and I know he's very eloquent so let's see where this goes. Welcome to the show Adam. Vítám tě, it means in Czech welcome. <laughs> well, <laughs> good day we to you. We, we welcome you and uh, that was a really great introduction. Well, you, you know the craft that we're both learning. It's very interesting city this Prague you know it's got a lot of stories a lot of hidden anecdotes so many things happened over the generations you could pretty much parachute into Prague during different eras and you'll probably get a plethora of different stories from different people who lived here over the eras and I think we're living in a very interesting phase of Prague's development but uh, if you want to talk about the Prague past and well we can I, talk about that a bit too what, what I'd actually like to talk about and because it's your story I'd like to talk about you and um, how it all started. Now, your accent is obviously not European. It's Canadian, isn't it? That's right. I grew up in, in Toronto, Canada until I was, um, I think, after university. 24 years old was when I left Canada. 18 was when I left Toronto. Went to school in Montreal. Had a lot of trips to Europe and finally decided... Uh, in my late 20s that I wanted to make the rest of my life outside of Canada. So I gradually made my way up here, and uh, this is where I ended off. But the C drive is Canadian, the software is Slavic, and the hardware, well, maybe I shouldn't say. So what is your heritage? My father is a Slovak-Hungarian. He's born in an interesting city in Slovakia called Liptovsky Mikolash. It's a mountain village in the central part of Slovakia near a city called Poprad. My grandparents are 
both born in Slovakia as well. My paternal grandfather is born in Austria-Hungary in 1911 in a city called Košice. My grandmother is born in Czechoslovakia in 1926 in a city called Preshov. My mother's father is born in Poland. Her mother is born in Rostov in the former Soviet Union. My mother grew up in Ukraine and then moved to Canada when she was 12. My father moved to Canada when he was seven and my parents met in Toronto. So that's how I end up speaking like this. And then I'm back in Prague because for me, it's almost like a coming home of sorts. So where did you learn Czech, the language? Czech I learned in school uh, here in Prague uh, with teachers reading newspapers. I hadn't spoken a word of it in Canada whatsoever. So you didn't get, a, get any Czech language from your parents, grandparents? Well, let me just make a distinction. We have Czech and Slovak. Czechoslovakia was a country of two distinct national groups, Czechs and Slovaks. And Slovakian is similar to Czech, but it's not the same language. For example, I'll just give you a small example. Uh, in Czech, we use the word příklad. It means example. And in Slovakian, it's príklad. But it's only a small difference. No, I can't, I'm flat out hearing the difference. Příklad, príklad. It's the way that you say the R. But I didn't hear Slovakian in my grandparents' house at all, although my grandfather could speak many languages. I've heard him... They're both past my father's parents. I heard him speak Hungarian. I heard him speak German. I heard him speak Slovak, and he could understand Czech. So Czech I taught myself. Okay. And, and ha- how long ago did you start? I started when... My first trip to Prague was in 2002. I was uh, in Denmark uh, during, I guess, a period in my life when things were a bit more fluid. And I had always been curious about the Czech lands because my father lived in the city as a boy. And I wanted to just come here and see what was on offer. So I swung down on a flight from Copenhagen. I landed in Prague. And that's when my odyssey and my uh, admiration of the Czech language begins. And in 2003, I started learning. I'd gone away for a bit. And when I came back three years ago to, to stay here for good instead of coming in on sort of furloughs, that's when I seriously, hardcore, hit the books. Are you a Czech national now? Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a Canadian uh, national on a Czech visa living here in this country. So how, do you, how do you stay? Do you just keep upgrading your visa? or? Yes. The, well, let me explain this interesting anecdote for most people that might uh, be curious about this. The European Union is uh, consisting of 27 member states. And if you're a European Union citizen, you can reside anywhere in the Union without a need to inform... Uh, any of the authorities about your whereabouts. If you're a non-EU national, which includes Aussies, Kiwis, Americans, Canadians, and anybody from Uzbekistan or Tajikistan, there's a different regime in play. You have to deal with the foreigners police, and there's other uh, complicated uh, applications that you have to submit. And so, yes, you have to keep uh, upgrading your visa, and you have to have a reason to stay. You can't just stay because you feel like staying. You have to either work here, own property here, or be married to a Czech national. That's always a good one. Right, men, you, you're married to how many? <laughs> so, uh, are, you, are you gainfully employed here? Are you a businessman? Yes, I own my own company. I own my own incorporated company. I do small media projects for a variety of local people. I do most of my work today in social media, so I help local businesses navigate this very complicated Web 2.0 world. I have a lot of contacts abroad, so I'm an interesting sort of turn point for people here. My claim to fame in Prague is as a journalist, however, I started here doing freelance stories for the local English language newspaper, magazine dispatches for other European publications. 
And then I started podcasting and doing my own show with businessmen and diplomats writing in business magazines. And that's what led me uh, into doing my own, uh, going out, breaking out of my own, being independent with all of my contacts in place for my journalistic work. So are you one of those rare, true examples of somebody who has learnt Internet 2.0, podcasting, and then gone and applied it and managed to get some income out of it? Yes, I think um, I have a university degree. I have a business degree. It's, a, it's an undergraduate degree. Um, it was good. But a lot of the things that I want to know, I've taught myself, and I have always eschewed the need to actually go to school and spend copious amounts of money picking up skills that in our very interconnected world I could if the, with the right with the right willpower I could just pick it up on my own uh, by reading through books or asking people yes I think there's, so there's a lot of podcasters out there Adam who are who are wanting to make something of the skills that they're acquiring and very few of them are achieving it sounds like you're one of those few I think I'm a bit of a special breed here in Prague, I wouldn't say that um, I'm doing anything radically different than what mo most podcasters do. Uh, I think, for instance, your site, it, the quality that's there is phenomenal. I don't think what I'm doing in Prague is anywhere on a par with your story podcast. But my value add in this part of the world is the fact that I am unique in terms of where I'm from. I'm unique in terms of where I was raised. My perspectives are not common to the local scene, I come with a more holistic worldview. That's a function of where I grew up and the people that I mingle with. The other aspect, uh, I think, is because I try things technologically that Czechs, by virtue of the fact that they don't speak English fluently, don't have access to. So my value add is I'm a foreigner, I speak English as a lingua franca, which is the international language of business, and I know tech and podcasting. Ergo, my podcasts will succeed more mm. than someone else's. Mm. And, and because you're an English speaker in a, a country that doesn't speak English, you're a rare animal. Yes. You're playing in this world. But how much does the skills that you're acquiring, how much does that work in the Czech Republic for enabling Czech people to learn about podcasts, to learn about Internet 2.0, to enable them to get on board and get them to grow. Businessmen, you know, do you make that your business? Is that what you survive with? What you're describing is, um, is a very high-grade consulting agency uh, working with local companies to offer them uh, consulting advice on how to navigate Web 2.0. I do more project-based work where somebody has a very specific campaign that they want to roll out or they need me to research a given area so I will put together a package of materials for them uh, and and submit it and then there's an, an amount that I get paid for that particular service. Uh, I use my own podcasts as a way to lure people into the world. I do a lot of audio to demonstrate to people the reach of what that can achieve. And I wouldn't necessarily say that I sell my particular podcasts for a hardcore income. Although, if somebody were to offer me a podcast series, and I've had them in the city before, to pay me to work with their clients to interview them and call it my show, then that would be a, a, a one uh, very representative example of what you're referring to. Um, although, it's a very questionable matter to ask what do you charge people for a research project and in an emerging economy as our food just arrives at the table? And this is my first taste of Czech Republic 
food. What a cheese. Herbed cheese, I think. Oh, yeah? We oh. say in Czech, Dobro chuť. It means good appetite. Thank you. Dobro chuť. Um, they're little bits of um, very yummy cheese that have been sliced into one centimeter cubes and rolled in oil with a dusting of salt and herbs. I've never had cheese that way before. Does it go well with you the beer? Uh, the beer is... Well, people, you know how much I love German beer. I think you know, Czech beer is going to be an interesting test. That's a real <laughs> McCoy Pilsner beer brewed at Pilsenski Prazdroj, which is in the city of Pilsen, which is actually oh, Pilsen. Is that where the name comes from? And it's in the west part of the Czech Republic in Bohemia on the German border. And it is probably one of the most famous brand names for the Czech Republic abroad. What, so, Pilsner? Yes. Oh. Sorry to say, Pilsner Urkvel, the actual brewery, is owned by S.A.B. Miller. So apparently we need the South Africans to show us how to properly manage our our accounting and books over at the brewery. But that doesn't take or diminish the, uh, you know, the Czechness of it all. Does, um, we just got straight off podcasting, didn't we? But I, um, Adam, does, um, the Czech Republic have restrictions on the way beer is made, like in Germany? You know, it's got to have water, malt, hops, yeast, nothing else, sugar. We were, we were alluding to the EU, and I was talking about, you know... Do you want some of this? I'll get into it, yeah, in a bit. Uh, we were talking about the EU, and we have to have sort of a delineation in time. May 2004, pre and post. It's almost like B, you know, BC, AD. Right. And after May 2004, which was when the European Union went through its second round of expansion, in which Czech Republic joined the European Union, there were a lot of things that came down the pipe that were EU-mandated. So silly things, silly regulations, and specifically, yes, one of them had to do with quality control standards at various food processing plants, including breweries. But beer has been brewed in the Czech Republic since the 16th century, so the patent, as it were, the process is pretty... It's pretty ironclad. Mm. I wouldn't say there's been any deviations, but maybe the guy, when he goes to the toilet, will wash his hands because EU directives state that there has to be a certain kind of sanitary policy right. on the grounds. That would be the only major differentiation, I think. Right, okay. So, back to podcasting. Give me an idea of where you think it's going, mate. And is it different here in um, Europe, Central Europe, and Czech Republic in particular, to the rest of the world, do you think? Good cheese. It is good cheese. Okay. My opinion about podcasting is very much similar to what Andrew Keane in The Cult of the Amateur, it's a book. He's a former Guardian reporter. Andrew Keane. And he talks about how technology has democratized media and the web so that any Joe with a will and a, and a credit card can equip himself and make a recording. I see podcasting going more specialty like the bubble will burst and then in the shakeouts those that know how to properly run a podcast will stick around and those will be the prominent podcasters that we will go to as listeners we won't just have a thousand different shows that we RSS and syndicate into our readers or our mp3 players or iPods we'll go for very specific information I think you'll have to specialize for instance like what you do you focus very much upon the individual you focus very much upon the idiosyncrasies of the person in question, and you really get a chance to understand someone. That's your, your otaku. That's a Japanese word for something between a hobby and an obsession. Your otaku is your story. Yep. And, um, or let's say a business podcast, my old show, The Knowledge, 
I was focusing on diplomats and business people. So I have very specific, and expats in Prague. So it's like a very specific niche of the niche. And that's something that uh, is appealing. Now, monetizing it, that's going to be the big X factor. We don't know how that's going to happen. 50 cents, um, iTunes shop, you know, would you pay 50 cents? I would pay 50 cents for your podcasts. I've been hearing a lot of stuff about the fact that maybe nobody charges for the actual podcast, but the podcast leads you into other things, whether that be sponsorship, whether that be, you know, opportunities to sell other products, um, you know, there's all sorts of other things. So I'm, I'm not quite so sure about the direct sale of podcasts model. I think a lot of it's going to continue to be free. Um, and I think music, which used to be all about selling the music, is now becoming free. And they're making money out of other things, the auxiliary things, the t-shirts, the concert tickets, stuff like that. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves. I think there's this whole thing about the personal brand, about you as the brand, you the individual. And I think what podcasting allows people to do, including things like Seismic, which is the mm. video comments, we know about that, yep. that's yep. out of San Francisco. Things like that really allow you to stamp your personality onto the web in ways that blogs don't allow you to do. I like podcasts because I can use my inflection. I can use my voice to talk like this. I can use my voice to talk yep. like this. I can be monotonic. I can be a jackass if I feel like it. I can be nice. I can be alluring. I can, uh, I can be suggestive. And podcasting really is for those who... I, I mean, I'll say what it is. For those who know how to use their voice appropriately, podcasting is extra quiver, arrow in the quiver that you wouldn't necessarily have if you were only a blogger. Um, and so, yes, I think there's like a consummate suite of things that you can use to help punch out your personal brands. And yeah, I think I like to use podcasting for that reason, even if I can't necessarily find a revenue model for, from the podcasts themselves. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of people out there who can't find a revenue model for it. So tell me a bit about Prague. It's an old city. A lot of people know that it's very famous for being a beautiful city and it didn't get particularly trashed during the war. Um, tell me about Prague. Prague is... Uh, something I like to call the consummate polis in the, in the Greek sense of the term polis being that sort of that mecca where people would have abscond to to have freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly in the old Greek sense. And a lot of people that have come to Prague over the ages really felt that this city was a, a haven, a sanctuary, and a refuge. Prague is the consummate small town playing big. It's a city that has anywhere between 100, excuse me, one and a half million to two million people. And in any other country, that would be considered a pretty massive metropolis. But Czechs really don't take themselves that seriously. And while Prague has all of the major amenities of any major capital, you don't really feel like you're in some Dodge, you know, Manchester metropolis or something like that. You, feel, you really feel like you're in a nice, cozy, that's a word that Czechs like to use a lot, Pohoda, it means coziness. You can't really translate it into English with a P, Pohoda. It means coziness, comfort, uh, freedom of thought, uh, uh, the right to relax, the right to drink a beer at 9 a.m. and nobody's going to ask me why, you know, this kind of thing. Hmm. It's also a city that is mashed up. It's got so many different influences. It has an imperial influence. It has an occupation influence. It has a consumerist trend it's um, it's a country that's it's, it's, it's the Prague is a city that's in a country that's landlocked and that also produces its share of uh, 
very uh, what some might consider to be wayward behaviors and we can get into that if you want and talk mm, about what yeah, the people well, of Prague are like yeah, I'm up for everything and maybe you can show me a few of these places um, it sounds like it's got a very laid back to use the Australian term a very laid back culture definitely I think Czechs laud their their rights their absolute inalienable rights to just kick back and take it easy you will see because today is Thursday you will see tomorrow on Friday people already beginning their weekends at around 11 or 12 in the afternoon in the morning yes before the afternoon arrives if you're a businessman in Prague and you're trying to like crank out a project with a deadline that crops up at 4pm on a Friday you can forget about it it's not going to get done if you have check subcontractors or if you're dealing uh, with locals that are on fixed salaries we have the concept of the weekend's cottage, what's known, well, I guess in, in, in the English world you'd call it dacha, but in Czech we call it chalupa or chata, and that's a hut or a shack or a cottage. And Czechs really take that weekend activity seriously, which includes barbecuing, sausages, Czech food, beer, uh, shots of spirits, the local one called Becherovka, which is a herbal liqueur, which you're going to try tonight. <laughs> after, because you're going to need it. The beer is only a chaser, buddy. It's the Becherovka is the the real deal. Okay, well, another but, beer just arrived. Cheers. Cheers. Nazdravi, we say in Czech. Nazdravi to your health. Nazdravi to health. So, so uh, when they go off to their huts for the weekend, they finish work at mid midday, do they? Basically, traffic. From 11 till about 3 in the afternoon, chock-a-block on a Friday. You, you come during the right period of time because August is the absolute quietest month in the, in the city of Prague. So you pretty much have the run of the roost. We can, we'll be having like carte blanche access to all the places we're going to go. You'll see how they'll roll up the red carpet for us. That's a very Czech thing as well. That has to do with the past. And is that because all the locals are out of town? Locals are out of town or they're in Croatia on holidays or they're in neighboring Slovakia doing mountain treks or they're just in Greece, Turkey a lot of th- those people do things like that and the, <clears throat> the rest of Europe has come here exactly uh, but when you say here we have to specify Prague specifically not the rest of the Czech Republic which unfortunately gets very short shrift uh, in Europe so what, what's, um, what is Prague compared to the Czech Republic? This cheese is really good, by the it way. It is very good. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's the right consistency. Yeah, I'm taking this recipe home. Yeah. What was the question? <laughs> um, the question was uh, comparing Prague to Czech, Czech Republic. You know, like I, I'm an Australian. I don't know anything about this part of the world. We have to take a moment to just pause and reflect on what Prague represented over the ages. Prague was a provincial city in the far-flung province of the Austria-Hungarian Empire known as Bohemia. It was a provincial capital which had the benefit of receiving a lot of Austrian investment and money. It was halfway between Vienna and Berlin, the Prussian capital. So people that were passing between the two big empires would sojourn in Prague for a week to a year, and a lot of people would get lost and abscond in Prague. For that reason, because Prague was on this central artery between these major metropolises, the rest of the country didn't really get looked at with as much, uh, with as much favor. There are other large Germanic cities in this part of the Czech Republic, Pilsen, Liberec, Cheb, 
Czeskie Budijowice. Every Czech name, by the way, has a German cognate because during the imperial times, the cities had German names, not Czech names. The Czech names only came into play after the First World War. Uh, so this is there's a lot of German Germanic things going on here in Prague, is there? You know? One out of every six Czechs has German blood, and you can tell by the surnames because the surnames are also very German. For example, Schulz. Yep. It's a very German surname. But how do you spell Schulz in English or in German? S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. How do you spell Schulz in Czech? S with a hachek with a hook, U-L-C. That's how we spell it in Czech. But you right. pronounce it the same way. Maybe a little bit stronger in Czech, you'd say Schulz. But you write it Schulz or Schulz. You know, it depends if you're German or Czech. But, and there's other names like Finger. Uh, in German we go Finger. You know, yep, there's many other examples. One out of every six Czechs, especially in Western Czech Republic. So is this part of the world actually classified as a Germanic part of the world? Yes, the Czechs have very Teutonic tendencies. Let me, let me state for the record, Czechs are Slavs. They are Slavs. They are Slavic peoples. They are not Teutons, but they have very Teutonic tendencies. And that comes from, again, the Germanic oversight, the past. We all know that Prague was occupied. The whole country, by the way, was occupied during the six years of the Second World War, and the Germans are their neighbors. We're surrounded, actually, on one, two, three sides by Germanic-speaking peoples, so there's always been a lot of crossover and overlap for that reason. Mm. So, that's Prague. What about the rest of the Czech Republic? And what, what's the difference between the Czech Republic and Czechoslovakia? Czechoslovakia was a name that was chosen by the three leaders that made a deal, an offer you can't refuse to the winning powers at Versailles in France in 1919. The eminent statesman, the first president of the First Republic of Czechoslovakia, Tomasz Garig Masaryk, whom we so affectionately refer to as TGM, TGM cobbled a coalition of forces together with another man by the name of Edvard Beneš, the second president of Czechoslovakia, and another man who was a Slavic, excuse me, a Slovak. His name was Miloslav Stefanik, and he was in the French military before the advent of the First Republic of Czechoslovakia. The world was in chaos at the end of the Great War, what was then the Great War, mm, yep. and we made a deal, never again will we have such carnage, and we all know the trench warfare on the battlefields in France, the Australians suffering tremendous calamity yep, at Gallipoli. Yep. We all know about this. And so they jumped on the bandwagon when Woodrow Wilson, the President of the United States, who was leading the Allied powers and divvying up the world, they said, okay, Czechs and Slovaks. Slovaks and Czechs were a little bit similar. Czechs were not so religious. Slovaks, you're very Catholic. We speak a language, it's relatively similar. Again, there are certain words in Czech and Slovak that sound the same. Some of them are completely different, but we can understand each other. Let's band together in a federation Let's present a common case to the great powers, Britain, France, United States, Soviet Union, and let's create a country of 15 million people in the middle of Europe with a tremendous industrial base, with coal, with uranium, with tremendous steelworks and know-how. We're a very smart uh, population. And let's call it Czech-Slovakia. Czech-Slovakia. In Czech, we call it Czechoslovenska. That's how we say it in Czech. So, Czechoslovakia. Czech and Slovak. Why not Slavo-Czech? Or why not, you know, this is another discussion, but that's how the name came about. And, that, and that's why Czech 
Republic is appropriate, not the Czechoslovakian Re Republic, because you actually, that was cut away. Yes. Right. Let's, in 1993, we, we had in this part of the world what was known as the Velvet Divorce. The Slovaks decided that they wanted to have their own nation state. In 1993, they decided they wanted to go out on their own. So there was a deal. We go there, you go there. Although Slovak, as a language, is the second official language of the Czech Republic, and I believe that it is the second official language of the Slovak Republic as well, neighboring states going out on their own, split into two pieces. We, there was a bit of a quandary as to what to call the Czech piece, because the Slovakian side had always been called Slovakia, even during the imperial times. But the Czech, we, were, we had many different ideas. We had Česko, we had Czechlands, like Netherlands, yes, Czechlands. Yes, yeah, the Czechlands, yeah. Um, there was, um, there was a Czech, just Czech, right? Mm. Uh, many other instances. And they decided uh, to call it the Czech Republic, I guess, in recognition of the Czech bit of the former Czechoslovakia and the fact that we were now a full democracy. Right. With right. the parliament. It was, it was under uh, communist rule during the uh, era of the Iron, Iron Curtain wasn't it? So how much independence did it lose from its own culture, do you think? After the war, we all know what happened to the countries in Eastern Europe. The Red Army had liberated a lot of these Nazi-occupied countries, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, etc., and had supported the nascent communist movements in these countries. If you look at the map, you will see that Czechoslovakia straddles the two solitudes of East versus West. And after the war, the president of Czechoslovakia, who I, his name I've already mentioned, Edvard Beneš, decided that Czechoslovakia could be the ultimate mediating country, could be the country in the middle that keeps the Russians at bay and keeps the great powers on the West happy. And it wouldn't side with either one of those solitudes. It would be a socialist kind of country, not a communist country, it would be a social democratic parliamentary democracy uh, of 15 million people that uh, would pay kudos to the Soviet forces, to the Red Army, for liberating Czechoslovakia and would keep the Western allies abreast of what was going on uh, with the Russians. And it was quite unfortunate uh, because it was not a plan that could work ultimately given that there were at least 100,000 Soviet troops on Czechoslovak soil. So that plan didn't exactly pay dividends, and eventually the country got snatched entirely under the communist fist in a putsch, in a communist-engineered putsch in February of 1948, which was three years after the end of the Second World War, which in Czech we call Velky Unor, which means Great February if you're a communist, but if you are a Democrat, you call it the Putsch. Similar to what happens in Weimar, Germany in 1926, the Beer, Hall, the Beer Hall Putsch, which led to the imprisonment of many of Hitler's cronies and Hitler himself. And we fell under the rule of the hammer and the sickle and Ivan. And um, <clears throat> what happened to that country with the, uh, with, uh, the USSR running it? How did it, how did it change? You've, you've already shown me as we've walked around town examples of the old buildings and the buildings of you know, the USSR. Now, there's this architectural style, this imposition, and 
the subway system? Yes. Basically, what happened was, if you know a little bit about the history of this very, very pained nation, we had a crisis in 1938 known as the Munich Crisis. There was a significant portion of German citizens living in the former Czechoslovakia during the interwar period between 1918 and 1939. They were Czechoslovak citizens, German speakers, but citizens of Czechoslovakia. There was a sizable portion of citizens in the former Czechoslovakia who fell under the Hitler, Hitlerian sway, so they wanted to join the Reich. Mm. So we had a leader of the Czechoslovak Nazi party who wanted Hitler to come in and dismember a portion of the former Czechoslovakia known as the Sudetenland, which is on the far western fringe of today's Czech Republic, absorb it into the Reich, like they did with Austria during the Anschluss, and to basically sever the Czech lands into a million pieces. Britain and France had a common defense pact with Czechoslovakia that in the event of Nazi aggression, Britain and France would come to Czechoslovakia's aid. We all know the story of Chamberlain signing the pact in Munich with the following people present, Neville Chamberlain, the French uh, 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 Prime Minister uh, Daladier, uh, Mussolini, and Hitler himself, with no Czechoslovak representation at the table. Ever since then, Czechs had it in for British and French. So when the Russians blew through this part of the world, there was a natural gravitation towards the Russian side because the Russians had not betrayed them, and many Czechoslovaks felt a strong affinity towards the Soviet Union. In particular, many Czechoslovaks had spent the war years at Stalin's hearth in Moscow. And when the war was over, they blew back through Central Europe with the Red Army and were installed in the parliamentary democracy, which was alive for three years after the end of the war. Those people engineered a coup, and they were Stalinist communists not idealistic communists, big difference. They implemented hard-line Stalinist rule, not communism in the benevolent Marxian way, but in the tortures, the suspicions, the kneecapping, the beheadings, and all of the gulag system. And from 1948 until 1989, for 41 years, this was the state of affairs in this part of the world. We had a brief respite during 1968, which was called, and it makes me do it every time I talk about it, the Prague Spring. The Prague Spring was this absolute age of Aquarius uh, in this part of the world where freedom of speech under a socialist system worked, re-examination of Stalinist-era crimes committed in Czechoslovakia during the 1950s were opened up, Light was shed in dark, dingy corners that had never been shed during the early years of Czechoslovak communism. The baddies were kicked out. The reformers came in. And I tell you, it's just like free love for eight months. Until August 21st, 1968, the Russians said, enough of that. And socialism with a human face. Socialismus slitskem tvářem. 
that's how we call it in Czech, socialism with a human face was dead for all time. And the latter, 41, the latter 20 years of the 41 years I described were hardline normalization, as we call it in this country, communism, everything shut down, everything. Czechoslovakia could have been a shining light to a form of socialism that actually worked. Indeed, the, the plan was that we would come back to that model of communism that this country thought it could do, as I said, at the end of the Second World War, immediately after. I had relatives living in this city in 1946 who described this total state of love which prevails on the Prague streets. I would, like, humorously tell them these little anecdotes, my uh, over 90-year-old cousin, third cousin, about what we do in the city today. He's like, Adam, that's nothing compared to what we used to do. And he used to tell me stories about nightclubs over on the Wenceslas Square, the Václavák, about how things he used to be able to do. But that, by the way, was the kind of communism they wanted here. And I tell you, for eight months it existed, and there are documentaries aplenty. And you can even see a brief glimpse of it in the film Bobby by Emilio Estevez with a reporter there uh, who plays a Czechoslovak uh, journalist who is able under the new uh, liberalized regime to travel to the United States and to cover stories like Bobby Kennedy's inauguration for the presidency of the United States, at which point he was, of course, assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel. It was this whole thing. Right. Great, great, great little scene. Okay. You can see it. Wow. I, you've just taught me a whole mass of stuff I never knew about. It, and, and it reminds me of and it, 68. It was, six, 1968 was a significant year internationally. You know, um, August 1968, the hippie was invented in San Francisco. There was that whole surge of love. You know, feminism movement had actually moved through and it reached its you know, probably pinnacle at that stage. It was just an extraordinary time, 1968. You know, end of summer, 1968, northern summer. Yeah, and I didn't realise that it happened here as well. There were riots in France. There were riots in Germany. Former foreign minister of the Bundesrepublik, Joschka Fischer, was a major rabble-rouser in 1968. All of the student agitators under the teachings of Jean-Paul Sartre in France were picking up cobblestones off of the Paris streets and chucking them at cops. Europe was roiling because I think the children were bucking the system of their parents. And their parents, of course, carried tremendous amount of baggage. And if we're talking about Britain and France, well, we have A, a collaborationist government, and B, we have a former dictatorship. So it, the whole world turned over like a pancake. And coming back to Czechs, Czechoslovaks, we were caught in this web of, of tempest, you know, in Europe. We never wanted to have anything to do with Hitler. We never wanted to have anything to do with the Soviet Union. But because of where we are in, on the continent, we are always being star-crossed by these tanks and forces. They're always passing through us, and they spill it onto us. I think that's how it all sort of transpired. I have no idea of any answer to this, but I want to ask you, are there any parallels in Czech history that compare with what's happening in our world today? The 1968, the rebellion, the squashing, you know, all that stuff, you know? And, and look at 2008, Western society. Are there any parallels, do you think? I think about this a lot. I try to ask my friends 
if they can suggest any other cities where this type of feeling, and you will get it into your, into your veins over the next couple of days, I will show you how it feels. If this kind of feeling exists anywhere else in the world, and I just don't think it does. I think, I think there's a Czech thing, quote unquote. There is a Czech thing, and it's just a very, you don't have this feeling even in Slovakia. Um, I think politically, maybe in what's happening today in Venezuela, in the kind of uh, socialism, that populism that is being practiced by, uh, by Hugo Chavez uh, over there. And I say this sort of very carefully because over there, the kind of rebellion he's leading is more of a returning the assets to the poor, sort of Castro-style populism, doing good things for the population, but with a little bit of an agenda. I don't think so. Czechs were, in that era were Europeans, were highly educated, uh, were good people. There's good genetic material here in the sense of some good talent. And it was a middle-class society. It was not, and, it, and it always had been before the war, before communism came in and screwed everything up. And so is there another kind of socialism with the human face? Because that was what it was called. Is there another kind of example like that? I don't know. I just, I really can't say. I, I don't think so. Is there that socialism with a human face here now, today? No. Today what we have is a, a country that's rapidly trying to catch up with the things it missed out on over the last 40 years of communism, and especially the last two decades of normalization communism. I think there's a tremendous American realpolitik which is taking place in this country which a lot of Czechs are not savvy to and are not protesting stridently enough against. And they will blink, and before they know it, they will yet again be um, under the sway. I won't use the word occupied. They'll be under the sway of another great power. What, what do you mean? What, what, what do you mean by that statement? Well, there's something known as missile defense. The Americans are using the Poles and the Czechs as proxies or cronies in their building of a missile defense shield, a Star Wars against uh, possible uh, WMD warheads coming from rogue states. Well, in this part of the world, it means Iran. They're going to be building a radar base. An agreement was signed between Condi Rice and our foreign minister, Karel Schwarzenberg, and just to build this base 70 kilometers to the southwest of the city of Prague, a former Red Army military barracks called Brdi. And there's a lot of Czechs, in fact, to the tune of two-thirds, according to recent polls, that don't want this equipment here. It's an orb. You can go to practically any search engine and just look up missile defense. It's a radar orb with, like, massive radiation spewing out of this thing with American advisors, I think 250 staffers, and all kinds of... Uh, anti-aircraft artillery emplacements built all around it. It's a remilitarization of Central Europe uh, against the wishes of a lot of Czechs who are true pacifists, who don't want the, uh, the advent of another Cold War, which... And it's only 70 kilometers away from downtown Prague. Prague. Exactly. I mean, we have we have the same thing in Australia. We actually have a, it's American property in the centre of Australia. It's called Pine Gap. It's exactly the same story. You know that that looks after the southern part of the planet. You know, um, and what you're talking about is something for Central Europe. 
a lot of Czechs get upset with that because we realize the absolute futility of the of the citizenry. The constituents don't have any ability to dictate to their elected leaders what they actually want. A proper referendum was not held on whether to accept this base. The present center-right center coalition is moving in lockstep with American wants and wishes. And because we're so consumerist and because we're, we're too busy catching up on the things of the past, which we didn't have, a lot of young Czechs in the 18 to 34 category, we're not noticing what's going on. We don't read the papers. We don't trust our politicians. We know that even if we did, there was nothing that we could change. So just blasé. And that's something that's going on here now, which doesn't get a lot of press. So most people live a Western life in the Czech Republic. I think Czechs are some of the most developed of the developed economies, developing economies in the post-communist world. When all the investors came after the Berlin Wall fell in 89, a lot of them first came to Prague to put their money uh, into various real estate projects or other sorts of things. The Czech Republic, if you look on the map again, is a finger that juts into Germany, then Western Germany, West Germany, but it juts in and Germany sort of cradles it around. So it's the obvious go-to city. If you look at any of the other post-communist capitals, Warsaw, Bratislava, Budapest, Bucharest, Sofia, they're getting foreign direct investment, but not to the tune of what Prague is. Prague was the first place everybody came. Prague had first pick of the litter on all the new goodies. They have a, a lot of consumer trials, so a lot of marketing companies will try new things out to see if it works in Prague, it's going to work in Bucharest. If it works, you know, if the new Guga works in Prague, then you can roll it out in Warsaw, no problem. So or, we're, or the rest of Europe, probably, for that matter. Also, also, I mean, we have Google has like a development office here. A lot of software companies use Czech uh, know-how in terms of technology. And so Prague has totally leapt Prague over all of that, that typical development path that a lot of nations would have to go through. It's almost like going from... Um, telegraph to mobile phone without going through the landline stage right. like they, what they did in China and many, in many respects that's what happened and Czechs became very wealthy relatively speaking very quickly the Czech currency today is surging it's the fastest rising currency in Europe wow it's a very wealthy society to the extent that people are no longer putting their money in Prague because it's too expensive relative to their currencies the tourism is going down and investors are looking for fresher opportunities further east. So what's the, um, what's the export? What, what does um, Prague, what does the Czech Republic give to the world? What, what comes out of this part of the world? Uh, the Czech Republic is very strong in transportation. So uh, let's say courier companies and uh, various long haul services, lorries, semi-trailers, yep. trucks, uh, industrial installations, warehouses of a massive scale, like industrial parks, because of our location. So that's one thing we do. In terms of exports, well, oh, beer. Before you go any further, but industrial parks, so there's, is there a big manufacturing base here? No, well we have the auto industry. We have, the Koreans are invested uh, at with a Hyundai plant in a city just to the north east of Prague, in Novosice. They're building a one billion euro plant over there 
to build Hyundai cars for Europe. Uh, also, Toyota, Peugeot has a Citroën, an Audi, that's it, TPCA. They have a plant in West Bohemia. They're building cars. We have our beer. Uh, we have our models. I know it sounds a bit uh, sexist, but we have our girls that go abroad and as ambassadors. And they're, and they're walking around the streets here, and they're, they're quite attractive, yes. Indeed. Yeah, Indeed. Not like Australian girls, but yeah. Well, you want the theory on that one? This comes to me courtesy of my very dear friend, the late, great Ray Hewsome, expat extraordinaire. You can listen to him if you want. There's uh, clips of him online speaking to me. But Ray says it like this. He was from Tallahassee in Florida in the States. He's not here with us anymore. Ray said, When the armies were passing through the Czech lands, they would take the men away or kill them, but the women they would leave. So the women that you see on the streets of Prague or in other Czech capitals, other Czech cities today, they're the real women that used to walk around this city and this country more than half a millennia ago. It's the same woman. It's the same double X chromosomal material. So you're getting the real deal. But the men... Men the are a mashup. Men. A little German, a little Austrian, right. a little Slovak, a little Hungarian, a little, little Croat, a little mix and match. Yeah, but the women are the real deal. Exactly. Take 10 Czech men, they all look different. Take 10 Czech women, you can get some very strong similarities. You get yeah. 7 out of 10, as we say where I used to come from, smoking babes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's, babes. <laughs> and it's summer here and it's hot and... You know, you don't have to wear too many clothes to stay comfortable, so it's hard. Yeah. Slavs are fleshy. We're very fleshy. And, you know, if you if you like curves, and I, in my, is my personal opinion, and not to digress, that women should have curves, you're in the right place. Mm. As we're talking, and, we're, and we've only been to, you know, with each other, do you want a drink? Yeah. Yeah. Prosim. No. Oh, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> we we spent a couple of hours together. You picked me up from the train station. You helped me find accommodation. You got me to trans- change some money at the right price. You even helped negotiate at the accommodation. It's been brilliant, Adam. Thanks so much. You're welcome. But as we're talking here, I'm starting to understand you a little bit. And we made a conscious decision not to talk too much before we turned the recorder on because we wanted to capture it all fresh. But one thing that surprised me, you grew up in Canada. But you say we, you say us, you say me, and you refer to this as your culture. This is home. This is who you are. But you grew up in Canada. I'm very grateful to Canada as that place where my parents were able to find a foothold and thrive and do well and have children um, after the war. My mother comes from a communist Soviet childhood with very little. She, my, my mother is a farm girl with, from coming from biting Ukrainian poverty. Um, her father was a carpenter. My father comes from uh, a merchant background, but uh, during the putsch, my grandfather had to abscond very quickly and had to leave behind a lot of assets. So. Both of my parents' families come to Canada practically destitute, not to mention not having the linguistic abilities, not having English as a lingua franca at all, not speaking any English. And I even remember both of my father's parents struggling with English, and the lone surviving grandparent, my mother's mother, 
doesn't speak English well at all, doesn't read it. So I'm grateful to Canada for that, but I don't really find myself having much in common with Canadians. I find myself having a lot in common with Europeans. I think this attitude came into its own during my university days as a student in Montreal at McGill University. And there I was exposed to a lot of, well, French-style living, the way that I look, the way that I talk, the way that I dress, the way that I court women, the way that I um, befriend people, my, my se- semi-flamboyant side. It very much comes about because of my experience as a student in a very European-style city. And I was longing for that after graduation in 1996. I was looking to be part of that milieu again. And when I'd gone back to try working in Toronto, my birth city, I found that it was a very puritanic, British-type city. And it was bizarre because you'd have these wonderful-looking, visible minorities from all over the world, various types of skin hues and eye shapes and hairstyles and body shapes. And I was like, Canada... Toronto in particular made these people into like palms, you know, like made these people into British boring, like these hot Brazilian mamacitas would come to Toronto and after one generation would be like cakers as we used to call them in Toronto. The reason we call them cakers, it's an Italian word manja cake because when the Italians came to Toronto in the 50s they noticed that the native Torontonians of the English, Scots and Irish stock would only eat cake while as Italians, we were very flamboyant. So, manja cake. So, we call them cakers. Interesting because, because story. they eventually just only eat cake. And boring. boring. Sponge cake. They're boring. Yeah, boring. Yeah. So, yeah. cakers. And so, they made these great Brazilians into cakers. And I just, when I came back after university and then traveling Europe, you know, as a, in a, as a, as a, as a grad, I said, this sucks. You know, like, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to raise kids here. Uh, I don't want to be part of this. I was turning a lot of people off because I was a little bit of a... I was a bit of a rabble rouser, and I was, I, I, I was maybe trying to assert my independence, and I was, I was rebelling. Um, my parents were in the fourth year of their divorce, and I was a little bit bitter about that. And I was looking for identity, and my parents, my, my father had a language that he spoke with his parents. My mother had a language that she spoke with her parents, and she never taught it to me and my sister. I have one sibling, and my father never spoke those languages to me in the house so we always spoke English at home because that was the language that we could all communicate in and I was as a student in Montreal with a strong French uh, Montreal is a 50-50 city in the sense of half English half French and a lot of my friends were from North Africa from Morocco and Tunisia and they and or mixed marriages where you have one parent who was from North Africa and one parent that was from Germany or from Poland it's really strange mixes and um, I, I was hearing the this melange of lingos in the house and I was so sort of I don't know if the right word is pissed off but I was just I was really I, w- I felt really deprived and I wanted to force myself into a multilingual multicultural situation and I took Spanish in my first year in school and I almost got into Spanish as a major with Spanish literature uh, as a third language that I knew so coming to Europe was like uh, it was like a panacea you know I was here and Czech as a language, now coming full circle to today, is the most complicated language in Europe. It is more difficult to learn than Russian, and I can explain why. And when I got here, not only did I have the bloodline, not only did I have the history, not only did I have the documentation to prove that my ancestors trod on this 
sacred grounds. Um, but I also had the challenge of trying to crack this check, you know, as like an extra little thing to do. And so that's how it all came about. Wow. Wow. Tell me about your parents. Now, I've, in the short time I've known you, I've sussed out you, you're, you're pretty sharp. You've got a good head on your shoulders and, um, and you can think for yourself. Are your parents like that? My father is not university educated. He's a very compassionate man. He's a fantastic provider. He's a wonderful person. He's a very beautiful man in the sense of he's got a beautiful soul. He's very mild-mannered. He's a dedicated father. He's always there for us. Even in my 30s, I'm 34. Even in my 30s, he's very much there. He's not sophisticated. He reads newspapers and books. He doesn't speak with, you know, $20 words. He harbors some sort of silly stereotypes about things, but not uncommon for people of his generation. He's a boomer, you know, not uncommon for people of his generation to speak that way. He's open to new things and he tries. Uh, he's very accepting of people's foibles, and I've learned that from him. My mother is the more studious one. She's not university educated either. In fact, I'm the only university graduate in my family. Um, but my mother, in her youth, was a voracious reader. She was consuming books just like three by the week, you know? Wow. And lo lots of fiction. My mother became a housewife very young. My mother comes from... Mm, her mother, I think it's fair to say, comes from a primitive type of background. Her mother only went up to the third grade, I think, in education. My mother could have been a really high intellect, but she had a very rough childhood growing up in the Soviet Union, and her father was an angry man because he was forced to shake up his entire life uh, during the war and in the massive migrations of peoples. I was not always studious. I didn't like to read. I was not a reader as a teenager. In fact, I was a slacker. I didn't uh, care about advancement or I didn't care about accolades. I wasn't an achiever. I always did well in school, but I didn't really try hard. I didn't take my education seriously. My parents invested heavily in my education. And somewhere I had a very traumatic experience in my first year in undergrad. And I think that's when I started to make the turnaround. And I realized that I felt very dumb and I felt like my friends knew a lot more than me. They came to the table with a lot more savvy, a lot more savvy, I think it's a good word. And then I started to really just put things into high octane. I just started reading everything I could get my hands on, these fat books. I spent a lot of time in the library. In university, I was a real geek. Not geek looking, just geek attitude. I, I spent a lot of time in school. I had a, a sort of a, again, I described this traumatic experience where I skipped out half a semester, which caused me to blow through 12 straight months in my final year at school. So I finished off at two years of university in my last year to catch up with that half semester that I, that I, that I, that I uh, flubbed off. And by the end of 96, I was sharp as a knife and I'd, got, I'd done case studies and, and I'd, I'd gone to lectures and I'd studied in the summer when everybody was going out and getting tanked, you know, coming home stinking blotto and I'd be just like cracking the books. And then from that point on, I decided to continue to, to, to enhance my 
my, 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 my personal database, you know, and I think that carries on to today, yeah. So what do you want to do with it? I like to think of myself as putting all of these things into my mind so that I can leave a legacy for people that follow me. I'm not a father now, but I would like to be one. I would like to have children very much. I think I would be a great dad. I see it around me here in Prague. Czechs are very familial. They're very, they're very cozy. They're very loving. I would like to do that. I would like to share my knowledge with people. For example, I get to invite somebody like you to my city and explain to you in very fastidious detail what happens in this place, what went down, who abused it, who glorified it. If I didn't do all this reading, and it's strictly for personal interest. Also, I like to be um, a well-rounded person. I think there's nothing wrong with wanting to be an intellectual. Uh, I maybe I don't look like an intellectual, but I, I, I consider myself one. And all of the information allows me to provide more creative solutions to anything I do, be it getting into a difficult spot and then coming out with a creative solution because I read it in a book in history. And for example, this situation then came about again as a result of something that had gone on in the past, in the not too distant past. Or if I'm writing something and I'm just and I'm, and I'm stymied for, for like a plot twist, I'll just go into like one of the books that I read in my head and I'll say, oh yeah, that, and I'll pick it out. Or theme and variations, you know, I'll try to pluck something out of the past that happened before and just apply it to my present day case. I remember, in, in conclusion, I think I remember watching this one documentary about the original sketch artists at the Disney Studios in the 30s and the 40s. Yes. Frank and Ollie is the name of the, of, the, um, of the documentary. And they had his wife up during the documentary, who was married to him for 50 years. And I'll always remember this line, maybe this answers the question more precisely. The thing I love about Frank is it's never boring with Frank a single day. He's always got something to talk about. And I just had dinner last night with my dear friends Pavel and Nadia, and they're journalists at one of the sites where I blog in Czech. And I, I stood back and I watched these two, and they're just talking about all these high-level thoughts. And I go, that's why I want to know, because I want to have that kind of relationship. I want to be able to give my partner that kind of banter, because she deserves it, and that's the only thing that's going to give my gray matter pleasure. That's the only thing where I'm going to get a mental orgasm from, from having those kind of conversations. Yeah, that's basically where it goes. That's, a, that's outstanding. And, and you've given me, as a gift, two books that you've written. We Are the New Bohemians and We Are the New Auroras. Um, when did you write these? For three years after graduation, I tried to be an independent filmmaker. I spent significant amounts of time in the Southern Hemisphere, in South Africa, and in New Zealand. I shot two short films in both countries, and I had a very negative experience coming back from New Zealand. I was very angry, and I had not clocked it the way I wanted to clock it down in Auckland. I flew back to Canada. My connecting flight was in Vancouver. I literally got off the plane in Vancouver. I called my folks in Toronto, which is three time zones to the east, and I said, I'm not coming home. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I got about three months worth of cash not doing, you know, anything. And I'm just going to go and find a place to live in for three months, and I'm going to just get creative. 
I think I lollygagged for about two weeks at coffee houses, reading books. I mean, it was Canada, so I didn't feel so foreign, you know, it was my country. And then I said, I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to do it in 30 days. And I wrote We Are the New Auroras in 30 days. I gave myself a very solid schedule. I was very upset that I wasn't able to control the creativity as a filmmaker because filmmaking is a very collaborative process. Mm. It's a dictatorship, it's a benevolent dictatorship, but still you need other people to help you achieve your goal. And as an author or as a journalist, I don't need anybody else, especially as an independent journalist, not working for like a major organ, you know? So I said, I'm gonna write it in 30 days, and I did. Um, and that was the, the first book, and I had written it in 2005. Uh, 2004, yes, 2005, uh, December. Uh, I got confused because they, we, we published it a few months later. Is it self-published? Yes. Um, and if somebody wanted a copy? Amazon. No, it's available on Amazon. Yes. Too easy. The second book, We Are the New Bohemians, I wrote shortly after my arrival in Prague. I was not as angry anymore. I had a lot of fun writing the first book. I wanted to write something that was reflective of my place, very much like what you do. You like to focus on place. It's a very significant aspect of your podcasts, Ian. And I wanted to write something that was very representative of my place. And post-communism was always alluring to me. And I decided to write a book about post-communist stories, things that I remember during visits to Prague in the early 21st century. And so I wrote that book, not over 30 days, that was actually over 60 days. And I put that one together, and I won an award for that book, so that was a nice accolade. To write a book in 30 or 60 days, when most people take years or decades, is outstanding. I think it's um, quite an achievement. I'm looking forward to reading them when I get some time. Thank you. Děkuji, as we say in Czech. Děkuji, like Borat says. Unfortunately, this... Um, even though I don't have a time limit on my podcasts and I'm never going to um, allow a restriction. I've always said that they're just whatever comes. This is going to be one of those ones that could go on for days. So we're going to have to sort of wind it up at some stage. But, but in order to wind it up, I'll, I want you to sort of give the listeners a bit of a feel of what, why they should come to Prague. Why should they come to the Czech Republic? And maybe what are we going to do in the next couple of days? The epitome of the Czech soul is never despair. Never, ever despair. The Czech race never despairs. And why I love these people so much is because they always make me realize when the shit's hitting the fan and you really think you're in the dumps, just think about the people that went before you and the stuff that they had to brook and how they emerged scathed but alive and finding a raison d'etre yet again. Never despair. That's what's so great about Prague. And if you get to the soul of this place, sojourn is one thing, tr tourism is another thing. Expatriate businessmen swooping in, clocking some ducats and taking off, that's another thing. But getting to the soul of the Czech, that's what you realize. As for what we're gonna do in the next couple of days, I'm going to do an around the horn with you, showing you how I live my days when I have time to kick back. I'm going to do, as the Italians say, dolce far niente, which means sweet doing nothing with you at a lot of places. 
Creative loafing. It's not doing nothing. <laughs> what a great term. Creative loafing. You need... Sometimes you got to step away to come back. Mm. And what you're going to do here, Ian, is you're going to step away to come back. And I'm going to put it on autopilot for you. I'm going to just take the pain away. The, the, the figurative pain. It's no real pain. I'm just going to let you coast, suck it up, take in the vitamin D, watch the boob jiggle, watch all the glorious things we got going on here, and just take it in and don't think about anything. All you have to think about is moving your two feet and letting your brain electromagnetically convey signals to your limbs. Make sure that elbow is well greased so that you can raise that mug to your well, mouth. This, this is number three mug, so I'm doing okay already. And I'm going to show you what Prague is to me, and maybe I can share with you some of that spirit so that you too can be imbued with the spirit of Prague. Mm, I'd love to, and I'll weave some of that into the, um, the addendum episodes. What did you say in the email that you sent to me the other day? That's a good question. I send you a lot of emails. Yeah, yeah, but you said what, sent one and it was basically, um, you told me about Air Prague. Welcome to Air Prague. Oh yeah, I remember that. How did I phrase that? I had to, it was something like, welcome to Air Prague, aisle seat or window, hang on. <laughs> I thought that's that. And Adam, I think that's the way this next few days, these next four days are going to be. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for friending me on Twitter. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Um, I look forward to becoming very good friends. It's really a pleasure to be here and to have made the two things come together. You know, just reaching out electronically and now you're here in the flesh sitting next to me knocking back a few pints. It's just, it works, people. It works. When you want something bad enough, it works. Cheers, mate. Cheers. There are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.